Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 19 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have Andy Bruce of ACB Coaching and co-founder of Statera. How are you doing today, Andy? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Todd. Yourself? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Do you want to give the listeners a little bit of an introduction into why you do what you do and how that's led to what you're doing now? Yeah, I suppose my my journey has been an unusual one into the realm of strength and conditioning and athletic development with youth athletes. My I actually now work at the school that I went to and much of my journey has been informed on not mistakes made, but my, my personal lived experiences and perhaps my thirst to try to do things better than, than what I did first time around and stopping people from maybe making the same mistakes. We all, we all find it difficult to sometimes take advice from other people. And uh, I, like, I like the idea of being able to, to help people before um, they, they fall into a trap of, of making a mistake that might have easily been avoided. And I suppose that's what coaching is, trying to help somebody get to where they want to go a little bit quicker than they otherwise might have done without that help along the way. Very nice. And for those of, uh, for those listeners who've never heard of Statira, do you want to give a little bit of introduction to what that is and how that came about? Yeah. So Statera is uh, a new baby, I suppose that I've been working on with my co-founder, Stephen, who does all the development and the magic behind the scenes working in a school environment it's it can be quite chaotic and trying to get a grasp on what on earth is actually going on with the kids in terms of their athletic development and their training load and their commitments to extracurricular activities again i work at a an independent school so they have a wide range of extracurricular um, engagements that they can they can partake in and it, and it can be very difficult to measure or even understand what's going on we we i think some of them perhaps are overloaded some are underloaded and Statera was born as a tool in which we can sort of bring all athlete stakeholders around the table looking at the same data to be able to start to have meaningful conversations about how we manage this problem because we're asking more and more of the generation of that generation and we we have a responsibility to them if we're going to ask all these things that they're realistic and achievable so it's an athlete education tool an athlete stakeholder tool um, more than anything versus a some sort of magic able that's going to tell you when a kid is going to get injured based on how much training they've done and how they're performing or when they're going to peak for a certain thing. It can be used for those, but it's more a tool for athlete stakeholders just to discuss an open and honest platform, seeing the same thing. Um, we all have these different perspectives. So that's kind of why Statera um, in a rather long winded answer, I suppose. No, I like that. And in terms of, um, in terms of athlete education, what do you think is missing, whether it's from strength and conditioning, whether it's from, PE, whether it's just from a school wellness perspective, what do you think is missing in terms of the education you're trying to, to provide with um, Statera versus, I suppose, the gap that's not being filled, if you will? That's a, a really interesting question. I think when, when we look at well, what's happened recently with, with COVID-19 and, and, and how we've all been locked down into isolation, one of the, one of the goals of most athletes um, or people who work with athletes, they all want them to sort of love sport, be physically active for the rest of their life and, you know, run off into the distance, happy and, and able to engage in whatever they choose to do. 
a big part of that is, and something I come across working with most athletes, more, more recreational endurance athletes actually than anything else, is trying to understand this balance. You know, we've only got so much time and resources that we can give to anything we do. And people often don't think that perhaps, you know, stresses from work or family or relationships might impact our training in the way that they actually do. So it's trying to create this breadth of data um, to, to understand the lay of the land before we start to make a decision where we dive down into the depth of the data. So you might have a power meter on your bicycle and that can tell you, you know, every pedal stroke you do in a three hour session. But if you are having a major stonking argument with your girlfriend or your wife at the time, your kids are driving you mad and your boss is on your back, your training somewhat pales into insignificance as well. And I think most kids will go to a, an environment where if they are engaging in sport, we'll have to balance these and spin these plates together. So that's the, that's the key thing, understanding that kind of stress is cumulative and it's a bit like a bathtub. We can't escape it. And we, we, we sit within our own bathtub of stress, whatever it might look like. And we need to learn how to manage that versus it being this, you just need to know X, Y, Z about training in order to enjoy physical activity for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I suppose there's almost an oversimplification from most people where, for example, you look at the training and then all of a sudden, for example, you get around uh, exam period. I think it's, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Milowski um, found that around exam period, athletes get injured more, sleep is poorer. But in theory, if you looked at the training program, the training program hasn't changed at all from a physical input perspective. Yeah, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think these things are that related. We do a bit of work at school with monitoring well-being across all year groups now. We say we've, <clears throat> we've run a study this year where we've looked at well-being in the autumn, spring and summer term. And we see these correlations between um, sleep and those kids that report feeling more sleepy, perform worse academically. <clears throat> the data hasn't necessarily come out yet where we can see where where their athletic performance is involved because it's very, very difficult to measure within the constraints and the resources that we have available to give to it. Unfortunately, that's another thing I suppose that Terrace hopes to solve is that it's really time intensive to record this data and do something with it. And the most important thing is if you're recording data, actually turning it into knowledge and doing something with it, there's no point in it sitting on my hard drive or my computer and me going, oh, that's interesting. And then not being able to act on it to help create an intervention that might be of benefit to somebody. So in terms of creating those interventions, um, like obviously we've discussed off air and you've sort of brought me through where it's at at this stage and where you hope to get it. Um, how do you, how are you going to mitigate the, um, I suppose the, the expertise required to actually understand the data. So if I'm a parent and I've, for example, got no idea what acute training load means uh, or any of the terminology, how might you mitigate the my lack of understanding in terms of as you said bringing those people together or using it as an educational tool very interesting question and perhaps one i don't have all the answer to just yet the the tool will be we will come to like the the understanding of what a training or the wellness of an athlete from different perspectives a parent sees different things they ultimately have they're probably the biggest stakeholder involved in the in the upbringing of their child. A teacher sees very different things at school. A sports coach sees different things. A PE teacher sees different things. So there will be ultimate sort of control from the organizational end as to the breadth of the data that's available. And they can decide when and what they share, for example, with a parent. 
parents and athletes can obviously log into the app and be able to see stuff specific and pertaining to that child. So they'll see their maturation data, which I think all parents and kids are kind of interested in when you tell a kid you're 95% of your predicted adult height. They love to go straight to the next kid standing next to them and go, what are you? How, you know, how much more have you got to grow? It's a natural social comparison that goes on. But you know, they'll, they'll see specific data pertaining to their own child. So maturation data, their training workload and their training timetable. I imagine a parent is far more interested in where they've got to get their kid to by when and what they're doing next versus what the team's training stress score is or cumulative workload might be. Um, so they can see their training. They can understand their injuries as well. So they can see their log of injuries perhaps whether they need to look after themselves and and again just their daily wellness score so that they might infer certain things and notice certain things when they can see a pattern of how their wellness has changed over time that a coach might not really understand they might not know that they had a massive raving barney the night before or had loads of homework on the night before so it just gives the opportunity to have that discussion and a platform to discussion more than anything else there are going to be a lot of caveats involved i think it's easy to think that this is a like I've said before, Magic 8 Ball that's going to tell you when a kid's going to get injured, when they're going to peak their performance. It's a bit more complicated than that, unfortunately. But it doesn't mean we can't empower ourselves with the, with the appropriate knowledge and the attempt to use it properly. So there will be some guides and t- hints and tips within the app as to what some pieces of information mean and what they don't mean. That's, that's probably the best I can give you so far. We're not, we're not at that level where we're really going out and, and operationalizing it so far. We're still majorly in development. And uh, these are really important questions to consider. And in terms of going back to what you said previously about your uh, work with your school and measuring wellness, what kind of metrics were factored into that out of interest? So we used the um, student process wellbeing questionnaire. Um, and the reason we chose that one, there are other measures of sort of wellbeing for, for, for pupils and students, is that there's a worker equivalent questionnaire so we actually surveyed the staff and the pupils simultaneously because we wanted to get an understanding of what the whole school body um, well-being situation looked like a baseline to start you know making interventions unless you've measured something for example we've stopped the boys being able to have mobile phones out during school hours it's difficult to know without a baseline as to whether that actually improves the well-being of the children anecdotally yes they, they concentrate better they're more engaged with one another but do we know for sure that that improves their perceptions of stress? Um, so they had a student wellbeing, student process questionnaire takes into account things like um, positive wellbeing, negative wellbeing, um, perceptions of academic uh, workload, stress, efficiency, psychological capital. Um, I think as I said, student stresses, uh, ratings of physical health. And yeah, we've married that up with academic performance and effort scores as well, taken from the school systems, which uh, is, is throwing out some interesting correlations initially. We'll have to do a bit more digging down into the data, statistically speaking, to understand how that changes over time between different age groups as well. Because, you know, what, what a third former goes through is very different to what a sixth former goes through when they're, when they're getting ready for their A-levels uh, and vice versa. Do you think that schools and PE programmes... Um in general are going to start to place more emphasis on actually tracking this wellness side of things um obviously given the current climate we're in and given that for example kids going back to school now is going to be much more stressful than if it was say just going back after six weeks of hot summer holidays 
I think I think there has been a trend in general towards well-being. We're starting to see these challenges to mental health of, of children uh, across the board. You know, not to demonise technology, it could be a really useful tool in in education and, and improving the wellness of certain kids. You know, just look at the number of mindfulness apps and well-being apps that there are out there coming out the woodwork essentially. So there's been a general trend towards it, I think, because the world is changing and our expectations of what you need to be able to do and the 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 efficacy of of technology to be able to kind of distract and intervene in your life as well is is improving all the time you know how i don't I'm not sure there's a person out there that owns a mobile phone that hasn't maybe not even aware of it found themselves just being absorbed into these devices um because they're so well designed to do so covid19 i think has only accelerated that it's brought into focus the importance of movement and physical activity for well-being even you don't even need to be a particularly active person to feel kind of stir crazy after a couple of days staying at home. And now we've removed or did temporarily remove the, the, the carrot of sport and competitive sport, which is often what most people consider all physical activity is about. Then, then all that remains is the, the mental benefits of sport. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a trend, one that will have been accelerated by this, you know, think about the guidance the government gave. You know, you were still allowed to go and exercise once a day for mental well-being. That that was important enough to keep in their guidance, um, which gives you an understanding that at a national level, at a medical level, um, and at a personal level, how important it probably is. And I think it's yeah, it's only going to become more important on the agenda as we go through time as well. And if we go a little bit more specifically into a P setting, so you said about um, people thinking that sport is synonymous with physical activity or for example well there's no sport now and therefore my physical activity might drop as a result do you think i know we're speaking off air about this but do you think that many p programs or people's perceptions of p programs is almost a similar thing in that p and sport are the same thing it's it's difficult to say what anybody's opinion on it of is course. i think it's really easy to to be drawn into that trap because that's kind of the model that, that mm. exists in a lot of schools. You know, we play basketball. It's, it's an expression of physical activity that's really um, easily available in our minds to think, you know, we see sport all the time. Or it's interesting to see actually now <laughs> with COVID-19, how, how much time has been freed up when no sport exists. You know, I, mm. I would spend hours trawling the BBC sport website, reading about different things. And now there's nothing really on there of any interest. I'm like, wow, what was free time? Um, to, sp- to spin it another way. I think that, and I heard this, Will Swain's a, a cool PE educator, um, came out with it. He, he says that every PE department or sports department should have somebody who hated PE or sports school. Um, because PE departments are often filled with people that enjoy sport and love sport. And strength and conditioning coaching is exactly the same. Loads of, inverted commas, failed athletes out there that have this journey where they're engaged in reasonably high-level sport or certainly loved it. And it's easy then to forget that loads of people don't actually really necessarily like sport and it's completely okay not to like sport. So if that's the only option or one of the major options that we're really offering provision with um, that's available to them, then what are they supposed to do? How, how do you become, what's socially acceptable to be physically active enough without sport and what does that look like? And, and I don't think we do a good enough job of articulating that perhaps. Um, so yeah, I probably would agree that you know, we are very, very heavily sport focused. It's been very interesting to hear the discussions 
through from directors of sport currently at independent schools around how we can create some sort of sport and which ways we can bring it back. There's not a lot left of options. Sport is pretty incompatible with social distancing. Um, I think next week I'm going to be doing my first rugby training session, socially distanced. So we're going to have groups of six players on the pitch of maybe 24 to a pitch, but nobody interacting with each other, no passing a ball to one another. It's an interesting challenge as a coach, but it does go to show the limitations of, you know, sports weren't created with a global pandemic in mind. They were created because people were mixing and, and socially interacting. And uh, I mean, this is a, <laughs> this is a, bit, uh, a question that I certainly don't profess to uh, know the answer to myself and something that I don't think there's any easy answers uh, to. But I love the fact of, I can just imagine somebody who hates sports sitting in a P department playing devil's advocate. Actually, I, I think that's a bloody good idea. How do we stop PE becoming this Marmite subject where it's either you're sporty and therefore you love it regardless of what's delivered or you're not sporty and therefore you hate it? I think we probably do, and it's an incredibly difficult task, a better job of integrating all these different areas in which a pupil will engage with physical activity during their time at school or during their education. So, for example, at Merchant Tailors, we have We've got a games program, they'll engage in PE, which is now essentially described as health and well-being. They have PSHE, they will have extracurricular activities where they could be active. They might do uh, outdoor, outdoor ed activities as well. These are all methods of physical activity. And they, I think we need to start using the same vocabulary and having the same conversations across those different areas that overlap and interrelate with one another that aren't necessarily the same thing so that we, we can make it more acceptable that any movement is is good you know i never amazed i'm always amazed at how easy it is for and how little i have to move and move around to start to feel good you know I, i'm my, my background and i enjoy endurance sport and running around for very slowly for long distances you know i don't have to run for three hours to feel good i can move around for five ten minutes around rolling around on the floor and i'll probably start to feel a little bit better yeah, we need a better job at integrating the ways in which physical activity can engage in our life and, and get away from these sort of predefined models that it has to be, you know, playing badminton or squash with a friend to be considered sport or to be considered physical activity. Just having it interwoven a bit more seamlessly in our lives will be a huge step and actually an acceptance and a, and a promotion of that and a rewarding that and recognising that whenever we see it, because I don't think we necessarily do. There'll be kids at school who are perfectly physically active. They might walk 45 minutes to an hour a day backwards and forwards to school um, and have, you know, physical activity integrated in loads of different ways, but not be a keen athlete. And therefore you'd be like, well, they're not sporty enough. And therefore we're in trouble and we're letting them down in some way. I don't, I don't, I don't think we have a good enough grasp of, of exactly what is acceptable. Um, and it's, that's the individualization issue, isn't it? When the, when you're trying to plan for a group or a population of people, say at a school level, it's difficult to create a system that's flexible enough to, to take into account individualization, which is a key principle of any training. It's got to be appropriate to that person. And I also think you sort of hit the nail on the head in terms of, uh, for me, the, like um, doing my PE teacher training, the biggest thing I've struggled with is measuring the outcomes of PE uh, in the sense of, either a i can visually see a pupil's improved but then how does that pupil know he or she is improved and then on the flip side if our aim is to create lifelong learners but for example 
we never hear from these kids once they leave school? How, how do we know if we've achieved that outcome? It's well, it's a really difficult outcome to measure. I mean, we're not often the focus is obviously internal, isn't it? We're worried about making sure that our our charges are, are getting through their, the hoops they need to jump through, essentially. Um, whether you're good at PE, at GCSE or A-level really probably has no idea, very little correlation between your happiness and, and levels of physical activity later in life. And it might do, I don't even know, I'm not sure that data's there, but we're not going to spend our time tracking all those kids that have left school as to how physically active they are, their, their resources and skill sets to be able to manage the problems that maintaining a physically, physically active lifestyle throws at them we're, we're interested in focusing on the kids that we've kind of got in the classroom at that point in time and, and rightfully so um so we've got to be careful in what we say we want to do do and achieve um there needs to be some sort of measure to it we're never going to always get these objective completely contextually valid measures that we can just apply ask someone something and get a clear answer but we can probably trend towards something that's a little bit more objective in lots of different situations I'm not sure if that's answered your question. It's um, the assessment is a key, is a key issue, and it, it has benefits, but it also has drawbacks. It drives accountability massively within your your staff body um, when you know that you've got clear outcomes to aim and try to achieve. But it can also constrain hugely what you're trying to do. You know, so much of movement and learning about movement is is non-linear, and it's about variation and variability, and just giving loads of different stuff a go. And that doesn't sit too comfortably with X kid can achieve X, Y, Z by X point in time. Yeah. Which is of course the way that we track pretty much any other subject. Like I always find it amusing because I think to yourself, if you sat down with a maths teacher and said, right, my kid is, I don't know, 11, what, where should he be by 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, that journey would, you'd be able to break that down probably fairly routinely because I mean, maybe I'm, talking absolute rubbish but i imagine that journey looks a lot more linear than like you said movement journey especially when we start to talk about maturation and how that interferes with uh, how well pupils or athletes move um and being able to communicate that um on the subject of being able to communicate stuff a bit better how do we go about improving or should there be a place for fitness testing within the PE curriculum yeah, I mean, I think you're touching upon the idea that testing can have this educational component, and I think it should if it's being used. Just to go back to what you sort of said there, actually, the you know within maths, for example, there's a lot more certainty as to what a kid has to know and be able to do in maths for a GCSE or an A level or any exam they're going to go and sit. And you know, there are tools and techniques they be. They, this is my from my memory of maths you need to be able to use and apply to information presented to you at a certain point in time so there's a bit more certainty there i don't think we necessarily have that with p like you can be yeah you can clearly be ha happily physically active um without achieving that at a certain point of time and it's they're linked to these structures that we as humans like to have you know we've got weeks we've got years and kids fit happily within these um year groups but we know we know from maturation data that the kids sort of you know will mature at different rates and at different times and that happens psychologically as well um you know diff in certain people different parts of the brain mature at different rates which might have implications for risk taking and you know 
think about it in sport a lot as well. You know, if, you're, if your teenagers are notoriously a little bit more uh, sensitive to risk-taking and, and happy to do so, and that, and that kind of the adult brain doesn't go, hang on a second, this could be a bad idea. You think about it in cricket, can your brain go, don't play that, shot, that stupid shot at that point in time when that ball is bowled? Will, will a child go, I'm just going to go for it? You might want to encourage that as well. Um, so I've sort of gone massively off track there and, and, and ignored your question a little bit. But it's, you were talking about the, was it the educational tool, weren't you, of um, fitness testing? Of testing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, done badly, it can be probably quite damaging unless you educate the kids on, on maturation and say, there could be a really broad variation in all these different scores. So let's say, I mean, at Taylor's, we do um, a mile run. So four laps around a track. Uh, we do a pull-up test, which is, is graded. So either it's just hanging from the bar, attempting a partial pull-up or their numbers of pull-ups and a standing broad jump. We're, we're broadly educating them around the different aspects of athleticism. So sort of, you know, really loosely upper body strength, lower body strength and power and your sort of cardiorespiratory fitness. And it's more as a benchmark. We're not, we, you know, if we, you're telling a kid they need to be X, Y, and Z, you know, outside of elite performance and, and measures of what it takes to win, it doesn't really matter what they are. It's just that they understand where they are and that they can learn about how to improve that and how to track how to improve that. Because that's what's going to happen as an adult. If you want to, if you're capable of being physically active in a range of different environments, you might start taking up running or triathlon or swimming when you're older it's important to know how to measure performance to a degree and how to improve it because we all we all enjoy these aspects of improvement like kids find mastery fun which is often a, a forgotten idea like we think it's got to be chaos for things to be fun for kids but they do enjoy learning a new skill and trying to improve it over time and coming back and you know feelings of self-mastery are important to people they're important to adults as well um so yeah educationally fitness testing there is a place for it i don't think we should be so black and white and say no it's not fun at all because it could be kids can enjoy competing against each other doing testing as well. When we started to introduce it at Taylor's, I think it was, it was strange to see how much some kids relished it and kids we didn't think would be engaged in doing so. Um, well, you know, highly competitive. It gave them a, a an outlet for, for them to sort of deploy that um, in a, in a fun way with their friends as well. Funny enough on, on that subject, um, the all girls school that I used to work at, we had uh, a good friend of mine, um, come in with his company and basically profile uh, all the kids um, across various different measures. And you had kids who, for example, doing um, an isometric mid-thigh pull who never would have thought they would be any any good, I guess, and not stereotypically sporty, who came out near the top. And like the smile on these kids' faces, like I think there's often, in my opinion, we think of kids doing tests who for example, might not perform as well as possible. And we think, oh, well, we can't do it because of them. And we forget that actually for some kids, this may be, you know, this may be the only chance they actually get to excel at something. Yeah, I think um, what the nature of well-designed testing as well. So like not saying that's what we do at Taylor's is, is necessarily that well-designed, but, you know, we're measuring these different aspects of, of physical fitness, essentially. It's really well, it's reasonably rare for somebody to be incredibly poor at all of them. So, you know, a kid who can't do any of them. Um, if if we do find kids like that, that, then that's another different conversation we can perhaps start. If a kid can't hold onto a bar for five seconds, can't get around a mile run in 
15 minutes and you know can't jump their body height in or even half their body height in distance you know that that would suggest there's probably some more significant work that might want to be concentrated and focused on whilst there's a not a window of opportunity but while there is it's easier to probably get some changes out of it than once you're into adulthood i mean we know you know i work with with obesity and, and, and eating disorders um in another aspect of the, of the work that i do and and obesity once it's once it's set in is is very difficult to change and your odds of you know as an obese adult changing that and losing that weight and keeping it off for the rest of your life is really really low that's why all the time and money is spent in prevention in the first place you know catching stuff early enough and being able to change and and manipulate that is is important as well and we shouldn't necessarily shy away from those conversations but yeah like you say that it's a great kids love comparing against themselves socially um it's it's very natural for them to do and as long as it's done in the right environment um and in the right way in that environment i think it can be really healthy for them and i think also just on the topic of for example you let's say you assess someone to the point where even though you've not got specific standards per se you find someone that is below a certain threshold where you're like actually this is concerning for their future and present uh, well-being i think there's also a miss um what's the word i'm looking for there's a connotation that if a kid does poorly that pe for the next i don't know six to eight weeks for them is going to be like military type fitness training until they get to a certain marker when in fact actually a kid who does really poorly you could even use in my mind use that for a different type of PE provision where right well if we design games in such a way they're going to get a cardiovascular hit from it they're going to learn to manipulate and balance their body in different ways they're going to improve their strength to weight ratio and it's all going to look fun it's not going to look like this sort of oh i must get to these markers and all of a sudden PE becomes boring as a result yeah we, we know those health behaviors are actually probably more important than where you know most of the data around you know it's correlational isn't it so if, if your waist circumference is a certain size you know you, you're at increased or high increased risk of you know stroke diabetes cardiovascular issues it's it's more important that kids are doing the right health but well adults in that situation are doing the right sort of health behaviors and you know most schools have really good pastoral systems set up and built into them anyway and that's what they're good at, that's what they really are good at doing so you know i think often we can I get the impression, I'm not sure it's necessarily true, that schools might think that PE teachers are just idiots and they're going to go, you're too fat, you should do this X, Y, and Z, and we're going to boot camp you into, into, a, into better shape. You know, we're a bit little, you know, good PE teacher, a little bit more advanced and thinking and forward thinking than that. It's about engaging with the pastoral chains of command and, and, and getting around a pupil to be able to help them as best you can at, with an individualized solution. That's Again, like going back to these key, key principles of any form of training, whatever you're trying to achieve, you know, if you're not, if the glove doesn't fit, it's not going to, it's not going to last very long or be a very sustainable change that you're trying to, trying to get out of a kid. So, yeah, I think um, it's, it's probably a little unfair and, and, and pointless to have such a, a black and white discussion about the fact that, you know, if a kid is, it does X and they fail, you know, we're not in, in certain setups where, where that's going to ever happen. Um, and it shouldn't be. And I, and I don't think that would ever come about. It, it would be, it'd be a shame and maybe I'm naive to think that it doesn't. But um, yeah, that's never the way that fitness testing should ever be approached. <laughs> and uh, On the subject of uh, stuff being sustainable, um, for better or for worse, I suppose one of the most sustainable behaviours um, 
that people adopt through childhood and then adulthood is the way that they eat. So um, in terms of nutrition, either for youth athletes, children, or just in school in general, what are some of the main issues that you've seen either in your personal practice or just as a general overview from your time uh, in schools, if that makes sense? Oh, that's a big question. Um, so nutrition is a really, it's a really difficult topic in the sense that everybody has their own preferences. Everybody has their own um, experiences that could be so, so different in so many different situations. When I look around the dining hall, when we were eating in a dining hall together, the, the, the ways in which kids engage with food is as varied as you, you might like to even imagine. Um, what I think that this time has given us actually is the opportunity to engage and talk about it. I've really enjoyed setting some nutrition tasks, getting uh, the group of sports girls I work with, I got I set them a task to, to prepare a meal for their family members and to, to make sure they did the washing up afterwards as well. Um, I was very impressed to see that one of the, one of the, one of the boys actually, his mum makes him <laughs> cook for the family once a week anyway, um, which is uh, some pretty good, um, pretty good old school parenting. Uh, but yeah, brings a bit of discipline into these sorts of things as well. Uh, nutrition can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so working at a boys school, you get this, this peak in things related to nutrition, like, you know, around the years 11, late years 10 years 11 they become very very interested in body image and training for for gains as they as they like to talk about and it, it can be a sensitive topic because you can definitely say the wrong thing with food and nutrition we need to really make sure we're operating within our scope of practice when and that we're not saying the wrong thing because whilst it will never be the cause of something more more negative, um, it can be a precipitator of that. So saying the wrong thing at the wrong time can really stick in a kid's head or any person's head actually, and be latched onto and interpreted inappropriately. And we've got to be very, very careful in the way we do that. But yeah, th this opportunity has you know, given us way more time to start focusing on these, these skills at, at home. You know, they're spending all their time at home at the moment. They're getting to the experience and the exposure to be able to start to learn to cook a bit more effectively. And these are the skills we really want for them. It's not that you need to have X, Y, Z macro balance and X, Y, Z calories. It's just focusing on general principles, you know, certainly for the growing athlete, you know, making sure you can try and get a bit of protein, a bit more protein in their breakfast is often something that's lacking. Um, and just experimenting and learning for themselves in a, in a non-judgmental way about the types of foods that, that work for them at certain times. It's, that sounds really airy fairy, but you don't want to be, you know, it's amazing what kids will misinterpret when you talk about nutrition. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of, it's funny you say about Scopus practice, the amount of times people will say to me, Oh, could you do me a meal plan or a diet plan? And, or I'm like, absolutely not. If, and I'll say something like, if you're eating enough vegetables, getting enough protein and drinking enough water, you need someone with more expertise than me. And if you're not doing those things, do those things. Um, but it's amazing how many people, whether it's personal trainers, whether it's people, not realizing their outstepping scope of practice, but people who dish out nutritional advice, which they've read somewhere, which may or may not be true without any sort of, as you said, I don't know, qualification or accreditation, whatever you want to call it. What are some sort of, I suppose, good practices in terms of your 
language you use and bad practices when it comes to either being around children, um, whether you're a strength and conditioning coach, PE teacher, parent, etc., and some bad examples, if that makes sense. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think one one clear one, and again, it's related to food a lot, um, is, is, is actually with body image. And the key principle, I would say, is de-emphasize body image. I have, <laughs> I've actually had the mirrors taken down in the school gym to stop, you know, we literally have a queue of kids sometimes in some lunch sessions at the end of their session, bicep curling and just staring at themselves in the mirror. You know, I'm happy for them to do that at home if they want to, but the the culture it promotes within a gym environment you know a younger kid comes in and sees an older kid bicep curling and looking at themselves you know that's promoting you're permitting that you're allowing them to say that that's important and we're valuing that in this environment and i think that we need to de-emphasize body image and promote the fact that you know regardless of of, of what you look like you should have and to be able to develop self-esteem um again they're very interrelated things you know body images are very distorted um sort of concept of the human mind it's multifactorial as well so we need to it's really tricky but de-emphasizing body image where possible really easy to catch yourself saying and talking about you know body shape um when it comes to sport as well because it it's it is a key aspect in it and it is um and it sits quite strongly within certain other realms of coaching and old school coaching you know coaches like to talk about body shape and you know it's there in cycling it's there in triathlon it's there in all sorts of different sports, rugby as well. Um, so what are, the, what are the other sort of things? Certainly with nutrition, um, be aware of, of sort of morality around food. I asked a group of third formers what, what sort of, you know, just in general, we were talking about carbohydrates, fats and protein in a really general, general way and saying like, you know, what are their purposes? What are they for? When do we come across them? And I said, so what sort of types of carbohydrate do we have? And the first kid put his hand up and said, good and bad. And, you know, that, that is, that, that has come from an adult, hasn't it? You know, that is, mm. a kid hasn't made a moral judgment on, on carbohydrates. So morality around food and watch out for that and stay away from it. You know, we want to be food neutral, I think is a really good um, principle to kind of go on that, you know, there are f- different types of food are appropriate at different times and there's no, hard and fast we don't want to demonize a certain food group in any way and i think that's really easy to do in the language we use um even with the word healthy you mm. know what the hell does healthy mean in a, in a certain context it's such an easy word to drop into sentences of something that we're you know we're, we're trying to talk about something that's broadly helpful and positive for that individual or productive for that individual versus you know it, it's, it's it's linked morally to, to things as well so we, we need to avoid those moralistic judgments of food try and stay food food, food neutrality is a good one and de-emphasizing body of the two answers i'd sort of give you there yeah to look it, for first. it's it's funny really because when you say the word healthy like if you look at the association for pe's latest outcome poster for what pe should be working towards um i think it's great that it's starting to look at pe in more of a holistic manner rather than just uh, a physical or technical or success within a sporting realm but my one criticism i suppose is similar to you using the word healthy there like there's a lot of stuff around resilience and well-being which i think is great but my issue is that for example if you were to lead a session on resilience and i was to lead a session on resilience and say an old school boxing coach was to read about a session on resilience those sessions would look like different things because we've all got our own interpretations of what for example words like healthy mean words like resilience mean 
and I think that's dangerous territory when there's no sort of caveat of when I say this, I mean this. You might have your own interpretation, but this is you know what I'm working towards, as it were. Do you also think you mentioned about um, working in a boys' school? I obviously had experience with an all-girls school. Do you think there's a danger of also stereotyping? As soon as we talk about nutrition, as soon as we talk about body image, most people might naturally associate that with, for example, I don't know, um, girls and anorexia or bulimia. Whereas, for example, being in, say, a rugby environment, you might toss out terminologies like, oh, this, this player's not big enough or this player's overweight. And it's almost brought under the sort of, it's, it can sometimes be talked about as banter rather than um, stuff that, for example, might actually not be best practice. So, for example, I remember we were at a conference and uh, another practitioner was talking about weighing all the players in front of everybody. And you immediately said, right, that's, that's not good practice. Um, but we sort of forget about any sort of body image issues as soon as we're talking about male athletes. Yeah, it, it's a really complicated topic. Um, I think in a, in a professional environment, it's, it is slightly different, but in most of these discussions, are, food is highly personal to us. Uh, body image is obviously highly personal to us. And we've got to be aware that most people might not have the, the skill set or the ability to be able to interpret information in the right way. And, you know, working with, with clients with eating disorders, for example, you know, a Fitbit might be appropriate to one person, you know, if that's helping them improve their number of steps a day, if they generally want to increase their activity, that's a cool tool to use because it gives you little prompts and it tells you, well done when you're doing it, it gives you encouragement and it says, you maybe you want to move a little bit more now you've been sitting around for a little while. But to somebody who has issues around compulsive exercise, that's the least appropriate thing you could ever imagine. That is only going to perpetuate and promote really unhelpful and damaging thought processes in that person. It's really easy to, to think that, well, you're talking essentially about really clearly defined vocabulary and what something is and what something isn't. And um, I was actually chatting with uh, Dave Hembro the other day and he was talking about how certain kids um, might not actually be very good at defining, you know, discussing things like what's a good friend look like? And it, it's quite hard for them to define what a good friend is. But when you ask them the other way around, what, what, what isn't a good friend? You know, someone might have had experiences of what that doesn't look like. And that maybe brings them closer to a picture and understanding and a definition of what they're talking about. We, so just be aware that all these different stages of development, we have a different skill set and a different ability to interpret different information. You know, what you feel standing on, on, a, on a weight scale in front of your mates might be extremely different to, to what everybody else feels and thinks. And we just want to keep those conversations in a safer place, probably, um, because they can become, you know, lots of eating disorders as well. And these issues come from behaviours that are, are positive in their intention in the first place. And then they change into something else. You know, I started to, you know, go for a run every time I ate a certain amount of food. And, you know, that was, that was good because it, it maintained my weight for a little while, but then it becomes something different and it becomes uncontrollable. Um, and that's obviously not the cause. So it, you just got to be super careful with those types of environments and what we're doing with them. Um, and that's a big problem for growth and maturation. If we're, we're saying we need to, with youth athletes, we need to take their weight and record their height. You know, we've got, it's really difficult to probably be able to do that safely in a group setting. I think force platforms are probably a really good solution for it because second they stand on it to do a counter movement jump or whatever, 
you've, you've essentially got their weight without them knowing about it and no one has to see what that weight is. Um, and, it, and it can be used for the purposes of maturation and understanding where they sit on their, on their growth curves versus it going, oh, this is what your weight is. You've really got to be difficult and careful not to promote any sorts of thoughts or feelings about what's going on when somebody, when you read that sort of information because you have no idea how it will be interpreted. And it's, it's funny you say that as well because I think there is also a danger of thinking that your adult understanding or your current understanding of what, for example, we might say, well, weight, it's just a number. It doesn't, like I always say to people when they say, I want to lose weight, I'm like, well, unless you're in a weight-making sport, you probably mean you want to lose fat because I could, for example, I've done it before. I'm not saying it's best practice, but I've lost, you know, nine pounds in the space of 24 hours for a meet. Felt like felt like crap. Certainly wouldn't advise it. But on that day, I managed to make the weight. Um, and again, like you said, I've, I've done it before myself where when I stopped boxing, because I boxed at 63 kilos in my mind, even though I was long since I'd long since stopped boxing, I was like, I have to be 63. I have to be 63. That is me. You know, and I identified very personally with that number, even though once I stopped boxing, 63 kilos was never going to be attainable and also was somewhat meaningless. And obviously now, if somebody talks to me about a weight, I'll just be like, it's, it's just a number. Whereas it'd be easy, for example, to try and put that onto everybody and be like, oh, why are you worried about your weight? It's just a number. When, as you said, if that's not the way they identify with themselves or with the number on the scale, then that's, you know, easier said than done. And that, you know, your off the cuff comment or your interpretation of it isn't actually as helpful as what you think it is. A hundred percent. I think it's an interesting exercise. Again, not suggesting you perhaps do it with the current conversation um, in mind, but if you were to ask a whole room of people what that number in their head was around their weight, it will be, it'll be very, very different across the entire group of people, but most people will have a number in their head. And when you scratch beneath the surface, it will probably link back to another point in time in their life. Um, that might be completely unrealistic. Like people's numbers, like, you know, you speak to a 50, 60 year old person, you know, they, they might have a number in their head that was related to when they were 20. And it's like, well, your body is completely different now. All these things have changed, but it doesn't stop that number being there and then thinking about it all the time. We've got, you just got to be really, really careful with that. You know, some, so if a kid comes and speaks to me and says, sir, I want to learn about nutrition or, you know, should I take creatine or should, what is protein bad for me? Is it bad for my kidneys or whatever myth or, or concern they have? It's important to have that conversation in an appropriate environment. If I feel I've got something valid and sensible to say to them and some considerations for them to go away with, um, I'm not going to do that in front of everybody. You know, that's going to be a conversation at the end of the uh, end of the session and say, you know, and try and understand why they want to know about that is probably more important. Than, than going, yeah, creatine is shown to be effective at X, Y, Z. Take it. It's great for you. You know, but that's not helpful for them. It's, we're there to educate and uh, we've got to be cons- just really considerate of, like I said before, what we say to people and how that can be interpreted. Uh, this, again, not a question that I put on the, uh, not a question I put on the show notes, but let's say hypothetically, if you're a coach, a parent, PE teacher or whatever, and a, a, gen- a kid who is generally overweight, um, comes to you and says, Oh, I, I think I should lose a bit of weight or I think I need to lose weight. Um, what's your opinion or what do you think? How would you handle that kind of conversation? Um, I think, you know, you've got to, you've got to take into account sort of safeguarding, you know, the, it, it, over, being overweight 
or people who are overweight, should I say, um, the reasons for that are a myriad of multifactorial. It's, it's about understanding essentially all the things that contribute to, to that situation and understanding what skills and resources that person has to be able to navigate that environment. And then you've got a best course of action as to what you want, what start, what to do. Um, of course, if it's, if it's challenging that, 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 that child's health or, and has longer term implications, that's something you're going to want to deal with, but you're going to want to deal with it in the right way. Um, you know, you're not going to just so go say, yeah, go for it, go, go crazy and do X, Y, and Z. You don't want to make, you know, you certainly don't want to make too big a deal about it, but you want to make sure the people that are going to have the biggest impact, like for example, the parents, like you, you talk to kids about nutrition all you want, but they're not making their food a lot of the time and they're not going to the supermarket and buying it. So it's really easy to forget that, you know, try and get this in your meal. And it's like, well, I don't do the shopping and this is what my mum gives me or my dad serves up for me at lunch or whatever it might be. So you've, you've got to be really considerate of the environment. All these situations, they always start with working out what, what's exactly going on, working out what resources are available and the time to commit to it and the, the motivations behind it, the why that person's doing it. And then you've got an understanding of whether that's an appropriate course of action or not. It's a, again, that's a nothing answer for you because no. it doesn't, it doesn't tell you what to do in that situation, but it's again, individual. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think it moves away from the sort of, uh, perhaps a gr- I mean, whilst it is true, if you eat less calories than what you expend, then you'll probably lose weight. I do think it moves away from, yes, that's true. But as you said, it can also be a gross oversimplification of what, especially when yeah, it's a bit, children. it's always a bit more nuanced, isn't it? You know, if you walked past a, a restaurant pre-social distancing and, and, and lockdown restrictions and saw it was rammed full of people. Um, and you said to your friend who's walking past, I wonder why that restaurant's so busy. And they said, it's because more people have walked into it than have left it. <laughs> You'd think they were being facetious or, or flippant or whatever. Um, but it's not, you know, it's because they serve good food and people like going there and they're seeing their friends or whatever. There are other reasons as to why these sorts of things happen. It doesn't give you the full picture, does it? Of course. Um, I obviously appreciate uh, we're on, uh, we're pushing close to the limit in terms of time. But last topic I want to cover is strength training for endurance athletes. So we'll just firstly, um, obviously, as an endurance athlete, I'm sure you've got your own experiences. But what are some of the common problems you encounter when it, it comes to trying to convince endurance athletes to strength train? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of inescapable things, you know, depending on your level, um, there's, there's a cost, there's quite a big cost to strength training. So let's say you take a, a recreational cyclist, you know, they may be cat three or cat two cyclist. Okay, so they're pretty decent um, and they're quite keen on their cycling. Probably the biggest thing that's going to get in the way of their performance as a cyclist is how much cycling they do and how much time they train cycling. So if you're going to start going, oh, you know, all the research says it's going to stop injury. It's going to really help, you know, um, energy production and um, force production, X, Y, Z. Let's get you in the gym. You're taking time away from them cycling, which is probably going to pay greater dividends in the short to medium and even perhaps long term for their performance. So balancing that is important. Knowing when and how much to do it is important. Um, and the cost of it as well. You know, you can make someone really sore, even from something that's quite minimal, um, certainly if they're not that conditioned to doing it, trying to keep it throughout a program and, and just touching on it is, is challenging. So the difficulties are from programming. I think it does have a benefit. It has a benefit not only in performance, but also psychologically it's huge. It gives a bit of variety to training. Um, and again, you get that self mastery. Most 
most say for example endurance athletes really like improving and knowing they're improving something and there's a really easy environment to go i picked up this weight last week and now i can pick up this weight so seeing those improvements are really motivating often for endurance athletes um and they like learning skills and they like getting better at things so there's definitely psychological benefits there you know undoubted performance benefits how regularly you can fit it in sustainably is is another question i tend to um cram it into i say cram it in that's probably not the best way to describe it put it into calculated fashion into my athletes training programs um when there's a little bit less stress on their racing and the performance in their training isn't so important but certainly when it comes to race season and maybe they're doing time trials week in week out then yeah it's not that important for them to be doing strength training it's important that they're doing their energy system work on their bike and they're in the saddle in their time trial position and working hard makes sense and in terms of concurrent training so basically a fancy way of saying we're going to do some strength training and endurance um at the same at the same time um what are some of the general recommendations you would give to cyclists maybe they're sitting there thinking right do i strength train first do i endurance train first how often shall i be doing it i know obviously that ignores a whole host of contextual factors but if you could just give some general overview recommendations what might those be um yeah, it's really interesting. People start talking about these nuances of like programming timing. And I think it's just more important than you're doing any strength training at all. Like if, you, if you're not doing any and you, you think there's a valid reason for why you should do some, it does not matter when you do it. Just get it done whenever your program allows you to do it. In general, you want it kind of as far away from the endurance type training as possible because we know there to be inter interference effects perhaps and differential interference effects. I think you are missing the wood from the trees if you're worried about whether it goes slightly before or slightly after personally um you know when <laughs> if you can measure performance to that level of accuracy and tell me that this works better before or after in your individual athlete then power to you um put it when you put it when you see fit but a getting it in at all is probably far far more important than you know the precise timing of it but in general let's keep them a little bit far away because pers personal experience, and that's just, this is not from any research papers I've read. It sucks when you're really tired trying to do strength training and vice versa. If I've done a high running week or loads of training, trying to add strength training and I probably feel pretty crappy and tired. Um, and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a drag. So in general, as far away from possible when they're feeling fresh, motivated to do so. But if you can't do that, then just get it in if you think it's valid. Perfect. And I've only got two more questions left just because I'm conscious of time. Um, the first one is if you could spend time with any coach observing them with their athletes, who would it be and why? Oh my God. Sprung that one on me. Um, who would it be and why? Any coach? I, I've only watched him present a couple of times. Um, I think I, I'm a massive fan of Dan John. I think that's a really boring answer to give, but yeah, he's, oh, he's funny. Dan and John. I think you pick up so many different cues that I've stolen from him in the past um, to, on certain things. So I'd, I'd love to watch him um, coach for a little while. And um, I'd like to see, and his, his work isn't something I really integrate. I think about that much, but someone like Franz Bosch on the ground mm -hmm. working with athletes. Um, I'd like to see that and what that actually looks like um, just from a point of interest. But yeah, probably because I get think I'd get more out of it. Probably Dan John. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, I reference Dan John probably more than anyone on this podcast. So I think that's a solid 
a solid um, a solid answer. And final one: Where can people go to find out more about you and the work you do, as well as um, your co-founding with Jotera? Uh, yeah, so I mean, both are on for ACB Coaching is on Facebook. It's acbcoaching.com. Uh, that's kind of me, my SNC stuff, a couple of blogs on PE and things like that, and my thoughts on physical activity um, and, and, and all the eating disorder related stuff as well. And uh, if you want to look at Statera, it's statera.uk, S-T-A-T-E-R-A.uk. And there's a website there just explaining sort of a lot what we're doing and a couple of blogs and a bit of news. We're hoping, and again, I say we hope, big word, um, hope leads to an action, but we're hoping we're going to be able to have something that's vaguely tangible by, by September. Um, so stay posted, go and sign up to the newsletter there. I really haven't sent an email yet with a newsletter. I'm only going to tell, send people emails when we actually have some news to tell. Um, but I'll, I'll filter in some basic news on our Facebook group for Sotera as well. So just search Sotera or ACB coaching. And hopefully, I think there's lots of energy companies called Sotera. So Sotera.uk is probably the easiest way to get to us. Perfect. Right. I will let you go there, mate, because I know you've got um, some online calls to make. But thank you very much for your time. Yeah, no worries at all. Really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully you didn't get too rambly. I think we covered a lot of diverse topics there. So um, maybe even if it wasn't for everybody, there was a little bit of something for anyone in there. I, I think those range of topics will definitely uh, appeal to a wide variety of listeners. So thanks so much. Fantastic. Speak to you soon, Todd. See you later, Andy. Thank you very much. Bye. So thank you for listening to the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, uh, Andy Bruce. If you want to check out uh, more of uh, Platform to Perform content, then you can head over to my website, www.p2pcoaching.co.uk. And if you feel you're in a position to support the podcast, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching where subscribing will give you unlimited access to all my educational content in relation to strength and conditioning, all the programs that I've designed to help keep people sane through lockdown and all of my calisthenics kids lessons where we aim to improve strength, confidence and movement skill in children using body weight training. Uh, thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you again in the next episode. <laughs>